welcome to the second podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty. I'm Ross Mackey, and today's topic is Inventing Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, the Santal Rebellion of 1855. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Conflict and Society Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. UNSW Canberra acknowledges their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today's presenter is Professor Peter Stanley of UNSW Canberra. He's one of Australia's most active military historians and is the author of over 30 books and a winner of the Prime Minister's Prize for Australian History. Formerly the principal historian at the Australian War Memorial and a specialist in Australian military social history, He's published several books on the military social history of British India, including White Mutiny, British Military Culture in India, 1825-75, to Die in Battle, Do Not Despair, The Indians on Gallipoli, 1915, and Terriers in India, British Territorials, 1914-19. to The Santal Rebellion of 1855 is not well known. But if the Mutiny Rebellion of 1857 is excluded, the Santal Hull, or Rebellion, was the most serious uprising the British East India Company ever faced. Some 10% of the Bengal Army's infantry was committed to suppressing the rebellion, in which at least 10,000 Santals died. The rebellion's memory lived among Santals, but British officers wrote nothing about it. If the Santal Rebellion is known at all, It's because it seemed, as a British officer said, not a war, but an execution. British officials, missionaries and anthropologists wrote about the Santal culture, in which the memory of the hall is central. But historians have, in the main, not used the East India Company's abundant records to investigate why the hall occurred, how it was fought, and why it ended as it did. Drawing for the first time on the Bengal Army's voluminous reports on its suppression, Professor Peter Stanley has produced the first comprehensive interpretation of the hall. Despite the Bengal Army virtually inventing counterinsurgency operations in the field and the Santals improvising their first war, the hall ended in starvation and disease. But between its bloody outbreak, its protracted suppression and its far-reaching effects, Peter Stanley demonstrates that the hall was more than just execution. It was indeed a war. Well, um, Peter, welcome um, to this um, podcast. Um, You're primarily known as an Australian military historian, and yet here we are talking about your forthcoming book on British India. How did that come about? Mm, Yes, hello, Ross. Um, Great to be here, and thanks for the question. Um, I think it goes back to my teenage years, which I spent in provincial South Australia, and... uh, India was, was an exotic place that I hadn't visited and, but hoped to one day. And then okay. the first time I went overseas was, in fact, to go to India uh, when I was 30. And I won't say I fell in love with India, but I found the place to be a very fascinating place to be. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll say it got into my blood, although actually I, I suffered persistent bouts of um, diarrhoea as a result <laughs> of going to India the first time. So I suppose it did get into my system in a very real way. But I've went, I've been, I go back to India, and although my bread and butter, if you like, has been Australian military history, um, I've maintained a fascination with India, and specifically British India, because it's a culture that no longer exists. It's yeah, a culture that yeah. only exists in history. 
Um, and I've been fortunate to be able to do a number of books on aspects of what I suppose we might call British imperial military social history, which is a fairly specific subspecialization. But, uh, but, but it's, it's drawn me back to India again and again. And specifically the, the Hull, the, the Santal Rebellion, because I became aware that, that there was this rebellion and there was almost nothing written about it. And there was particularly nothing written about it by a military historian. And one of the things I like to do is novel things, first things. And so I thought, I think the Santal Hall deserves its own military history. Yeah, well, I mean, it's so little known. Um, I, I thought it would happen, but I typed Santal into my phone, and as I expected, autocorrect changed to the sandal. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's a word, it's a people we know nothing about. So why don't you fill us in on where the Santal region was um, and who the Santals were? Yeah, exactly. There are people whom we have very little to do with. Uh, the, the Santals are an indigenous people in India, Adivasi as they're known in, in modern India, uh, but, and they were indigenous to India, but not to the region that the Hull broke out in. They were a, a people whose origins and uh, distribution is fairly shadowy in history, but they, they emerge in the British period in about 1800. And the British uh, officials induced the Santals to migrate from their homelands in Odisha, uh, which is basically to the left of Calcutta, uh, to migrate into the area of the Rajmahal Hills. Now, the Rajmahal Hills run diagonally down from the big bend in the Ganges. The Ganges flows basically eastwards, and then at the Rajmahal Hills, they flow, it flows southwards towards Calcutta and the sea. And that corner of the Ganges is where the, the Santals began to take up land and become tenant farmers in the first decades of the 19th century. And they became... Um, tenants of Bengali, mostly Hindu, landlords. Yeah, it's interesting that they were tenants and not owners. No, they were, they were uh, subsistence farmers who uh, uh, were beholden to these landlords, uh, generating income for the Raj. I mean, the, the, the East India Company's rule in Bengal was basically a gigantic tax farm. It was a revenue-raising device. Yeah. And they paid the landlords. The landlords extracted money from the Santals. Landlords paid the Raj. Um, and this went on for several decades. But by the 1850s, the Santals were getting very tired of being exploited, exploited principally by their landlords, but also by merchants whom they call Mahajans. Uh, and they were um, inflicted with crippling rates of interest. If they borrowed money, which they would to buy seed or to uh, arrange a marriage, for example, the, the Mahajans would, would screw them for every Anna, every rupee they could get. Yeah. And the, the Santals basically got sick of this and uh, turned on, the, on their landlords. Okay, so it was sort of financial reasons and financial abuse, of exploitation, that was the cause, root cause of the rebellion. Essentially. Uh, but they were expressing, too, a sort of Santal cultural identity. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary because these people had been in this country for just a few decades, you know, in, in the country in which the rebellion broke out. But they'd become very much at home there. They were very conscious of their identity as Santals, who are an animist people. They're not Hindus. They're not Muslims. They're right. very distinct from the Bengali people who lived around them and very distinct from their landlords. And so they were expressing, if you like, their, they, they, they had a very naive, perhaps, idea of freedom 
uh, thinking they might be able to win their freedom by killing their landlords and by destroying the Mahajans. Well, of course, that was never going to work because the company, the East India Company, mm. depended upon their stability, their tractability, their ability to pay their, their revenues for its very existence. So, of course, the company deployed the Bengal army to suppress this rebellion. Um, tell us something about the Bengal army. Um, it was run by the East India Company? Yes. Look, the Bengal army, uh, the, the East India Company had three armies in India, each one for each of its presidencies. Uh, the Bengal army, which is the biggest and the oldest, um, the Madras army, which is uh, virtually moribund because the, the conquest is finished in the, in the south, yeah. south of India, and Bombay on the other side, which is the smallest army. And the Bengal army is basically native troops, as they were called. Um, so it's, it's uh, uh, the, the largest single disciplined force in Asia. 74 right. regiments of um, sepoy regiments, uh, I- Indians, but dressed in red coats, white trousers, shakos, black leather shakos. Um, and it's those men who were basically imposing the East India Company's will upon the Indian people. And although they take part in the Great Wars of Conquest, as, as British rule advances across India, um, so the wars against the Marathas and the uh, war against the Sikhs in the 1840s, the Afghanistan debacle, yep. um, it, it's the sepoys who are the basic um, foot soldiers, literally foot soldiers of those conquests. But they're also involved in suppressing rebellion. And right through the history of the East India Company's rule in India, the Bengal sepoys uh, take to the field to suppress insurrection. And in 1855, they're deployed to the Santal country against, as, a, as you said, the, the, the second largest insurrection that the East India Company faced, mm. if you accept the Great Mutiny Rebellion of 1857. Um, just one question about the Bengal army. Uh, you said that the troops were um, all Indians. Um, NCOs and officers, were they Indians as well? Or? Uh, they were, but every sepoy regiment had British officers and it had a, a European a couple of European non-commissioned officers. Right. So, so it's Indian foot soldiers, Indian non-commissioned officers and Indian officers, but all of the Indian officers are subordinate to all the British officers. So there's a very distinct racial hierarchy. I have to say I'm, I'm fascinated by the Bengal army because it was literally wiped out. It destroyed itself in 1857. And so the form in which it, it existed in the first half of the 19th century was unique. It, it, and yeah. it, then it disappeared. So I'm really interested in understanding this arcane, complicated, multiracial, multi-religious uh, military phenomenon, which is abundantly documented. It's not as if it's obscurely documented. It's, it's vastly documented. And, and trying to understand how it worked and who the, its members were and why they did what they did uh, is one of the great passions of my scholarly life. Yeah, no, I think it's a fascinating topic, but perhaps we're straying away from the rebellion a bit. Um, what about its nature, the extent of the rebellion? It was well, a, well, actually, perhaps, um, can you give us a quick overview of, of the whole thing and then then maybe we'll come back to that? Sure, yeah. It's, it's a great shock that it breaks out because Santals are not a warlike people. They're, they're regarded as very peaceable and tractable and subservient, and they are, until they suddenly turn in the monsoon of 1855. And they break out and start to massacre their landlords and the Mahajans, and then they spread across the Rajmahal hills and beyond it into the, 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 the districts of, of Birbhum and Bagalpur, uh, so just south of the Ganges, and then within 100 miles of Calcutta. And this is a, a, wow. a surprise to the, to the 
people have assumed, Europeans have assumed that the, the Santals will just put up with it, and they don't. Um, so the Santals start to massacre and, and uh, uh, range against their neighbours, the Bengali neighbours, and then the company moves in, and there's a series of clashes with the sepoys, and then because the monsoon is falling all through this, and it's very hard to move around this country, the British authorities basically call the, the operations off, and then at the end of the year, they start to advance into the Santal country, and they appear to mop up the rebellion. Now, I don't think they do, or they, the rebellion ends, but I think it basically collapses from within, because the Santals have run out of steam, they've run out of food, they're starving, they're, they're yep. sick, and basically they realise that they can't prevail against the, the Leviathan of the company. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, as you say, it was the Leviathan, it, incredible resources against them. Um, so, having got this overall picture of um, the rebellion that started before the monsoon, um, it had cultural and financial aspects, um, the slaughter goes on, and the Bengal army is called in, um, the monsoon starts, there's a hiatus, and then after the monsoon, um, the Bengal army suppresses what's left of the rebellion and the Santals are often starving or um, dispossessed. Um, is there more to the rebellion than the things we've covered? Um, perhaps who were the protagonists um, and leaders? That There is a huge amount to the rebellion because although it's been the subject of some scholarly studies uh, some decades ago, the, the real, the, the essence of what was going on there has never really been penetrated, um, partly because historians haven't looked at the, the detailed records. So, for example, some things w were apparent at the time and, and subsequently. So, for example, leadership. Who were the Santals? They don't have a warrior class. It's not as if they're a, a soldierly people. Yeah. So ordinary Santal males armed with the, the weapons which, with which, or the tools with which they clear the jungle, axes and bows and arrows which they use to kill game. That's the, they're the people who are fighting and they're the weapons they're fighting with. But they're led by their village leaders called Manjis. And, uh, uh, but, but young men emerge through the, the, the rebellion. So in fact, the, the main leaders of the Santals are young men who have these charismatic religious visions of Santal oh, freedom. okay. And it's they who, who lead the Santals into battle and who tell the Santals, uh, our cause is just, we are armed with, with righteousness and they actually tell their, their followers that they'll be immune from musket balls, that the musket balls will turn to water. Well, of course that doesn't happen. So there's, there's great, uh, many Santals are killed in battle. Uh, uh, I think about 2,000 Santals die in clashes with the sepoys. But another 8,000 Santals die of disease and starvation. But, and most of them, of course, are women and children because the whole Santal population moves around the country um, preying on yeah. their neighbours, but at the same time not being able to grow their crops so that they're unable to sustain themselves. Of course, yeah, yeah. This is, this is often the case when you're dealing with indigenous people um, who are in agriculture or farming. Yeah. It disturbs the, their economy and their society profoundly. Mm. Yeah. You, you mentioned women, um, and the Santal women you know, moved around with the men. Um, did they have, what role did women have, Santal women have in this rebellion? There's, uh, there's a very good article written about Santal women, and one of the things that the author brings out is that women were basically um, multiple victims 
as is often the case in history. Um, it was believed at the time that the rebellion broke out because the Santal women were preyed on by labourers on the railway works. They were building railways across Bengal at this time. Yeah. And the railway labourers, the sort of Indian navvies, preyed on Santal women. That is true, but it wasn't sufficient to explain the, the outbreak of the rebellion. But Santal women are also victims because they're basically made to trek around the country full, uh, carrying their possessions and their food uh, and without real having carts. I mean, they're carrying baskets of rice. Um, and the women, too, become the victims in the sense that when the rebellion starts to fail, the Santal men look for explanations. And one of the explanations they come up with is that witchcraft, that witchcraft must have caused the, the, the loss of that, that battle. Mm. And so they turn on women and decry them as witches and often execute them. Oh. So there's, women are, are sort of three times losers in this rebellion. Yeah. Um, awful treatment. Um, so how did the Santals go about rebelling? And, um, you know, the topic of your, your talk is inventing insurgency and counterinsurgency. They, the Santals, in a sense, invented their own form of insurgency. And I think you're going to explain to us how the Bengal army invented counterinsurgency. Absolutely. Look, the, the Santals, as I say, have no military tradition. So it's not as if they've got a, a pattern. Um, they feel aggrieved. They, they know who are oppressing them. And their immediate response is to kill those people responsible. So that's what they do. They embark on a killing spree. Um, but having done that, what do they do? Because they, they have no technique, they have no tactics. They have well, no doctrine. strategic vision. Exactly. Yeah. And no means to, to disseminate that vision across this large number of Santals across the Rajmahal Hills. So what you find is that individual Santal leaders start to act in a way that they think works. Sometimes it doesn't work. So that they'll... Uh, attack. Some of them will attack sepoy detachments. Other of them will evade the sepoys. Some of them will pick up firearms, which they've taken from village constables, and use them. Others won't. So there's a huge variety in the way in which the Santals are expressing their their feelings. I mean, their feelings are to, to desire freedom and to, to to destroy the people who are oppressing them. But the way in which they do it is is actually perplexingly diverse. It's, it sounds very uncoordinated, ad hoc, and fractured. Um, yeah, and that's why the rebellion basically doesn't work. But the Bengal army also has no counterinsurgency doctrine. It's no. been suppressing rebellions for decades, and it's, it has methods that it knows work, but it doesn't write those methods down. So the Bengal army, uh, also perplexingly, does things that it records. It records its operations in immense detail. Every lieutenant that goes out with a sepoy company will write two or three pages or when, yeah. he, when he returns and it's submitted up the chain and it eventually finds its way to London. I mean, in exquisite detail, which is why we know so much about the rebellion. Um, but, the, but again, there's no real pattern of, of the company's response. They do things in common. So, for example, they, they launch what they call doers, which are patrols or sweeps. Um, in which they'll encounter a Santal village, possibly burn it, uh, drive off cattle, impound food and so on. But there's no single doctrine that the, that the army follows. And because they don't write anything down, it's almost as if they're inventing the process afresh. So yeah. both sides really are improvising. Yes, and both sides are taking different approaches just depending on whoever's in command at the time. Exactly. Yeah, fascinating. Um, 
you've said that the Santals are making it up as they go, essentially. Um, but you've also talked about the the weather um, and the monsoon and things. Um, how much did the weather affect the, the rebellion? Mm, this is absolutely crucial in, in several ways. I mean, one thing, Ross, is that the uh, rebellion breaks out at exactly the time when the Santals should be planting their subsistence crops. Right. So, in a sense, the the rebellion fails right from the start because they can't sustain, literally can't keep themselves alive. But in another sense, it impedes the movement of the Bengal army. So the, the, the troop columns of sepoys, it, supported by elephants, I mean, there's these huge columns of elephant transport um, plodding through the, the paddies and the jungle of, of West Bengal. Uh, and the, 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 the monsoon stops them from... Um, making their way through this inundated country. So the, the monsoon is crucial to the British calling off the active operations. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, the British commanders don't want their men falling ill, as they will of fever and dysentery in the, in the monsoon. And they wait until the ground dries out. And the, the other thing about the ground drying out is that it allows the East India Company, the Bengal army, to employ cavalry. And the cavalry proved to be one of the things which the Santals simply cannot resist although they can move quickly through the jungle and they can hide in the jungle, if they're caught in the open, the cavalry literally cut them to pieces. Oh, yeah. So that the climate yeah. and the combination of that with the terrain is explains why this rebellion was suppressed so readily. So the rebellion just petered out, in a sense. In a sense. I mean, it was the drives that the company commanders launched at the end of 1855, really do snuff out the last embers of rebellion. But by then, you can, all, you can see, because the, um, the political officers, the civil officials of the company, were active in collecting intelligence and working out what was going on and communicating with the Santals and interrogating right. them. So you can see what's happening on the Santal side of the hill, if you like. Although the Santals leave no records of their own, except oral history and songs and so on. There's no detailed records, but you can infer a great deal because the civil officers, who many of whom understand Santali, are recording what they're picking up, what they're hearing, what they're finding out. And it's clear that Santal society is breaking down almost, and, and they're, very, they're keen to go back to their settled, orderly existence, uh, which is what happens in 1856. It's an extraordinary... And did they resettle period. in the areas that originally been in? Yes, they basically went home. Now, sometimes their landlords wouldn't didn't want them back they, because they... Well, yeah, there'd be a certain amount of animosity, wouldn't and there? And fear on the part of yes. the landlords. But basically, the landlords needed the Santals to work and pay their rents, so it was a symbiotic relationship. And the Santals, although they were, I mean, in one sense, roundly defeated, I mean, it was a tragedy for the Santal people, in another sense, they actually did get uh, some benefit from it because the British officials realised company officials realised that they'd allowed this oppression to go on and they felt a guilty responsibility towards the Santals. I mean, they regarded them very paternalistically, but it meant that the regime that they introduced after the rebellion was specifically directed to looking after the Santals and protecting them from this kind of exploitation. So it wasn't all bleak. There was, you know, some benefit to the Santals. Oh, it, it arguably protected them yeah, from, at a from huge exploitation. Price. I mean... 10,000 people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And the Santal people in that region were probably 50 or 70,000. So it's a, it's, a, it's a large proportion of the Santal population which yeah. suffers. Yeah, I mean, you're talking upwards of, well, up to about 20% of the population. Yeah, exactly. It's huge. 
Um, Peter, let's sort of take a, a look at this from a different perspective, um, and that's sort of the his, historical, his, <laughs> the historiographical perspective. Uh, why is, apart from being um, poorly documented by the Santal, why is this rebellion so little known when mm. it, it was such an important part of the counterinsurgency um, yeah. development? I think there's several explanations for that, Ross. I mean, one is that, um, if you like, it's outside the mainstream of Indian history. Indian history, for the past century, really, has revolved around the idea of a, nation, a, nation, a freedom struggle, the, the struggle to establish the Indian nation. And although the Santals are often regarded as a sort of precursor of the Indian War of Independence, that's a stretch because yeah. they had no concept of nationhood. And crucially, they weren't Hindu or Muslim, which means that they're not within that tradition of the, the mainstream, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that they're they're in a sense marginal, um, and because they're not Hindus or Muslims, the people interested in them haven't really. There's been no no flag bearer, no standard bearer to say this is our history. There is no. There's a very poorly developed Santal history. It's always people like me, outsiders, who are telling their history. So it's either missionaries or anthropologists or or Hindu historians. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think. I think that's really interesting, the way that you've put the rebellion in the context of the historiography of um, Indian history. Um, but there are also military historians. You're the first military historian who has really examined this. And counterinsurgency is a much-discussed um, issue at the moment in military worldwide. How come counterinsurgency specialists haven't looked at this? Good question. I mean, this is extraordinary. When I started to look into this and realising the abundance of the documentation, I thought, well, I can't be the first person. To, to, and then I realised I was the first person. I think I'm correct in saying that nobody else has looked at the, doc, the, the, the documentation. And that means that, that, and as you say, counterinsurgency has been and is a big topic in military history, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. And yet here's a, an insurgency and a counterinsurgency, which even specialists in the field haven't written yeah. about. And I can only say that it's because basically counterinsurgency scholars tend to avoid British India. It's odd because it was riven by... I mean, there were literally dozens of insurgencies in Bengal in the first half of the 19th yes. century. This is only the biggest. And yet none of them seem to have attracted real attention, even by Indian military historians. And I can only ascribe it to a curious blind spot that they never thought to look there. Fascinating. Just, yeah, yeah, blind spot, as yeah. you say. Um, Peter, you've talked about the um, East India Company archives in London and what a wonderful record um, and how you're probably the first person to look at them. How difficult is it researching a, um, a topic where, one, access, we're in Canberra, access to those resources isn't easy um, or cheap, and um, where it's a very lopsided case with the sources. You've got you know, the British-English language version mm -hmm. of what happened and very scarce resources on the Santal side. Yeah, you put your finger on it. Um, the records are actually duplicated. That There's a, a, a huge stash in New Delhi as well in the National Archives of India. Not so easy to use either because of the archival practices there and the facilities. Um, but it is very difficult to use... Uh, the, Simply because of the, the the scale and the quantity of the of the documentation, that the um, the records were transmitted to London in hu on huge 
um, super fool's cap sheets. I mean, the biggest sheets oh, of paper you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And then bundled together in huge volumes, so that the in ledgers. So the ledgers for eighteen, for the second half of eighteen fifty-five alone, are about seventeen ledgers, each of which is about four or five or six inches thick. So there's just a massive oh. quantity to sit down and work through. All of it. Written, and are these handwritten? Yes, they're all written in what what was called Babu's scribing, which is, a, a Babu is, a, is a, a native clerk, and it's now regarded as a not very nice term of, of abuse. But in 1855, it was a descriptive term, it meant a native yeah. clerk. And they wrote in often beautiful um, handwriting, but often in a, in a scrawl. That, that I, yesterday, as a matter of fact, I came across the, the number of sheets that a Babu was expected to cover in the course of a day. And you can see why the, the handwriting got a bit scrawly towards the end of the day. <laughs> it was a lot to transcribe. And mine deadeningly uh, work as well. Uh, anyway, so, the, the, so one challenge is simply getting across the quantity. But the other is to understand the structure of the company's organisation and to understand how those um, records relate to the bigger picture. Because you get, you get literally minute um, explanations of, of a, a day's doer, you know, a patrol, yeah. And you've got to stitch that into a narrative of six months and then to work out how that gets transmitted and how the orders go back. And so it's actually, I mean, I find it a very enjoyable challenge, but it is a challenge that you can only do if you spent literally weeks and maybe months working through that sort of documentation in either New Delhi or London. Wow. In, in a sense, you've got too much information. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Absolutely there is. Yeah. Yeah. With that information there and with the Santal Rebellion being so um, significant in counterinsurgency doctrine, are you the only person who's looking at this? Oh, I, I would hate to give that impression, Ross, because j just last week, in fact, I discovered that a month ago there was a two-day international symposium held at Javadpur University in, in Kolkata, where I had been in January. Uh, and it turns out there are lots of people interested in the Santal Rebellion. Oh, heartening. Mostly yeah. in India, of course. Many of them Santals, uh, eager to recover the history of their own people. And so, really, one of the things I'm so pleased about is to be able to give to Indian scholars, Indian colleagues, and especially Santal people, an insight which I've gained from the British records into the experience of the Santal people in this period of their history which is profoundly important to them uh, and which really needs to be better understood for all sorts of reasons, not just the history of a counterinsurgency, but the history of India and the history of the Santal community. Yeah, yeah. And you are actually giving them something because there's a book coming, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be published next year, I hope. And that book is... Oh, it's called Hull Hull, The Santal Rebellion 1855. It'll be published by Christopher Hurst uh, in London. Uh, who published my PhD, also on British India, 20-odd years ago. So I'm really pleased that Hearst, a company that specialises in South India and the Global South, will be able to disseminate this, the, this research uh, internationally. Cool. Peter, I hope the book goes well. Thank you so much for a really entertaining and fascinating discussion today. I've enjoyed it, um, and it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Um, I'd also like to thank the audience um, who are out there somewhere. Um, it's very nice of you to listen in and to advise you that this is the second of the UNSW Canberra Navigating Uncertainty podcasts. The next topic in the series is the case for a post-military defence force. Sounds really fascinating and that will be presented by Dr. Ned Obos.
Thank you, Peter. Thank you, audience. Goodbye.